0: In this episode, we continue our discussion with Anne Schlafly Corey about her mother's success and how she began to fight the Equal Rights Amendment.
1: Well, her first run for Congress was in 1952, and it was kind of quirky because the, um, the local Republicans had actually come to my father to ask him for to run, but he was not so interested in that and not as uh, vivacious as my mother. But we lived in a heavily Democratic district. There was no way a Republican was ever gonna win this district. It was just an effort to have somebody on the candidate to put up a candidate for it. But it was a great learning experience for my mother because as I said, she was quite introverted and shy and she had to put herself out there and meet people and talk to people. And I think anytime you do that, it's, it's a tremendous growth for you personally to learn what the issues are that people are really concerned about. Um, And so I love my mother's slogan in 1952, a woman's place is in the house, the U.S. House of Representatives.
2: Well, it's interesting. um, When women get on the internet now or scrolling Instagram or looking at Snapchat or just hearing the news, we hear this narrative that we are so oppressed and, you know, we've got to shatter those glass ceilings and such. But you're saying that in 1952, she ran for Congress.
1: Well, she did a lot of things, but there were also a lot of other women doing plenty of things in 1952. The idea that women today are oppressed is a detriment to young women today because My mother believed in 1952 she could do anything she wanted, and you know what? She Mm -hmm. did, and I think the same is true for women today. Mm -hmm. If you put your mind to it and it's something you want to do, there's no glass ceiling to, to keep you back.
2: That's right. And so she ran in 52, and then she ran again later. Is that right?
1: She also ran for Congress in 1970. And that one, she really put her heart and soul in, and and it was a very close election. She actually got John Wayne to endorse her. Really? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And she was quite disappointed when she uh, lost that election. Uh, It was was closely fought. But, of course, you know, when, when a door is closed, a window is opened. And she counted her blessings for losing that election later on because the fact that she lost that election meant that she was available to fight and defeat the Equal Rights Amendment. And
2: previous to that, that run was in what year?
1: 1970.
2: Okay, so previous to that, she released a book. The one she's probably most well known for—that was 1964. In right?
1: 1964, she self-published a book called *A Choice, Not an Echo*, which sold three million copies from the garage.
2: Wow! Out of your garage. Yes. <laughs> so, what was that book about? Why was why did she sell? Why was she able to sell so many copies?
1: A lot of times, you, a book sells a lot of copies because it hits the moment of the time, the zeitgeist of what's of what's happening in the culture in nineteen sixty three uh, our president was assassinated and it was such a shock to the system that the political speeches that she had been giving were no longer relevant, or people weren't interested in that. People were emotionally um, depressed after Kennedy was shot. And so she changed her stump speech that she would go around giving to Republican clubs, because she was very active in the Republican Party, and she would give speeches to Republican uh, clubs. And so she changed it to a history of the nominating process of the Republican Party. And so she went through uh, how presidential nominees are chosen and what happens in the backroom deals and what she called the kingmakers who like to jerry-rig and determine who is the candidate rather than the voters determining who is the candidate. And this speech became so popular that she then packaged it into a book called A Choice, Not an Echo.
2: And what was that choice, and what was the echo? In
1: 1964, the echo was um, Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, who thought that it was his birthright to be president of the United States, versus an upstart from Arizona named Barry Goldwater, who had written a profound book called The Conscience of a Conservative.
0: I think that it's pretty incredible that she not only was able to run for Congress twice, but also was very prominent within the party. And I think that says a lot about like what you were saying, Glenn, that you put your mind to it even if you are a woman and you're not suppressed, you can do whatever you want and make very big ripples in um, not only your local community, but also at the federal level.
1: So someone once said to me that it's the locks on the inside of the room that are more powerful than the locks on the outside of the room. And I think any time a young woman or any person blames outside forces mm-hmm. for their defeat, they are limiting themselves because we are only limited by the limits that we put on mm-hmm. ourselves.
0: And one of those things that she thought is a threat in limiting women and girls was the Equal Rights Amendment which we touched on a little bit before, but can you kind of divulge into that and really what got her motivated in starting that fight?
1: The Equal Rights Amendment sounds very simple and harmless. But the devil is in the details of what would happen with this pernicious amendment and it was so, uh, so non-controversial in 1972 that I think it passed both houses of Congress with only token opposition and then a bunch of states immediately ratified it. and. The problem with the ERA is that once you realize the effect that the language would have on our laws and our society is when you realize that women lose under ERA. Mm -hmm. And my mother, who had not particularly paid attention to social issues prior to, to the 70s, she had really... Uh, spent a lot of time, as I said, fighting communism and worried about national security. She, when she looked at what the effects of ERA would be to women, to mothers, to families, she realized that women needed to realize that this amendment would be quite harmful.
0: And was she the only one advocating for that?
1: Well, certainly in the early years, Mm -hmm. she was the most prominent one because a lot of people just hadn't paid attention to it. But once it became a bigger issue, the more debates that occurred with ERA, the more people understood what a a problem it would be. In the early 70s, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were pro-ERA. All of the presidents had been pro-ERA. All of the first ladies had been pro-ERA. Mm-hmm. So no one had paid attention to the fact that the, that this is an amendment that had opposition because anybody who was anybody was in favor of it.
0: That's very interesting. So what would you say was the turning point in the ERA fight? When did Phyllis's work? start to take root and really waves of people started to oppose the measure
1: a lot of people think the turning point was the international women's year conference that was held in houston in nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight and this was a conference that congress had passed had appropriated five million dollars to put on and the um, the carter administration at that time was very much in favor of having this national women's conference and the um large number of feminists gathered in Houston to debate and pass um, resolutions that they thought would that they were in favor of but the, the people who put on this conference were None of them were conservative, uh, and none of them were interested in, the, in presenting the conservative side. And so my mother and her allies got together another group and had a competing conference across the town in <laughs> Houston. And the image of these two conferences of two completely different sets of women disagreeing on the issues presented on the national stage for the first time that women are not a monolithic voting block mm-hmm. all women do not think the same w- women have varied opinions on the national issues and this got presented really for the first time on a national uh, scene and and many people consider that the turning point for uh, the passage of the ERA, and and what turned most of Americans against what's known as second-wave feminism, mm-hmm. because second-wave feminism was utterly radical in its goals for overthrowing the family, harming motherhood, and really changing women's lives. I think that's a very important point
2: that you make. Um, not all feminists are made the same right so a lot of our friends um, would call themselves feminists today but they don't mean the same thing as the feminists of the 60s and 70s is that right
1: well the feminists of the 60s and 70s grew out of the of the anti-war movement and they were really anarchists they wanted to destroy well they said they wanted to destroy the patriarchy but they wanted to destroy all the systems mm. they they wanted to fundamentally change our system of government fundamentally change our families and fundamentally change all of our laws and and that is a very different viewpoint from from the women who well shall we say the women who are quite happily married Mm -hmm. with their families and really don't want to change their families.
2: Right. So when we say that we're anti-feminist, we're not saying we're anti-woman or anti-women's right to vote. What we're saying is we're against these radical
1: views. I remember a great interview that happened. I believe it was me, the press or it might have been the the PBS news hour and the, and one of them had commissioned a poll and the polls asked the question to american women are you in favor of women's rights, or are you in favor of Phyllis Schlafly? And that question was asked to my mother. And the the interviewer said, well, according to our poll, 80% of American women want women's rights, and only 20% agree with you. What do you have to say about that? And my mother said, your poll is wrong because she said, I am in favor of women's rights. Mm -hmm. So to say that I am opposed to women's rights is a bad question and doesn't ask the question right because the question is, what are you in favor of for women? Are you in favor for women to be able to have babies and bring up their children and raise their families the way they want to, or are you in favor of women uh, killing their babies and having abortions? I mean, those are the kinds of stark differences. The discussion of women of what, mm-hmm. how do you define a woman's women's rights? Because we cannot let feminism or the second wave feminism of the 70s define what a woman's right is because we have rights that we want that they don't allow
0: thank you for listening to this episode of engage with eagle forum please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on twitter facebook and instagram from your house to the state house to the white house this is engage with eagle forum